Welcome to Your Cases on Hold, a JBJS podcast hosted by Antonia Chen and Andrew Schoenfeld. Here, we discuss the science of each issue of JBJS with an additional dose of entertainment and pop culture. Take us with you in the gym, on the commute, or most certainly, whenever your case is on hold. Welcome to Your Cases on Hold, episode 19. We're looking forward to talking more about some interesting articles today. Just as a reminder, all these opinions are our own and do not represent JBJS in any way, shape, or form, including the editorial board or the board of directors or anything associated with a JBJS. This is sponsored by Clinical Classrooms. If you've never subscribed to Clinical Classrooms before, please do so. You can get CME credit or SAE credit from it, and it's a great resource for learning. And if you're interested in contributing to it, please send us a message at uh, jbjs.org and uh, send us a message there. I'm Antonia Chen, I'm Deputy Editor of Adult Reconstruction Knee, and this is... I'm Andrew Schoenfeld, Deputy Editor for Methods. We Dracools have a right to be proud. What devil or witch was ever so great as Attila, whose blood flows in these veins? That's straight out of Dracula by Bram Stoker. And if you thought we were going to be in October and I wouldn't be talking about Dracula, you don't know me very well. I have mini Dracula right here. He's ready to go. He's ready to put some cases on hold. None of this Ivan to suck your blood stuff. This is real legit Dracula we're talking about here. <laughs> but as uh, orthopedic surgeons, we do kind of suck some blood out. Just saying. Well, yeah, you know, the yank hour. <laughs> there you go. All about <laughs> the yank hour. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. So starting off with top of the pile, we got a bunch of good ones here. Parasport effects on musculoskeletal function and injury patterns by Saks et al. is free for 30 days. The fiery pain of complex regional pain syndrome. This is by Dr. Quatman. It's in the arts and humanities section. And we all have patients who deal with this. Development of a robotic spine surgery program, rationale, strategies, challenges, and monitoring of outcomes after implementation by Curis et al. And finally, Providing Orthopedic Care to Vulnerably Underserved Patients by Hancock et al. So that's our start off, the top of the pile. Now on to the headlines. Will you take us off here, Dr. Schoenfeld? Absolutely. So my headline is local infiltration, analgesia versus interscaling block for pain management following shoulder arthroplasty, a prospective randomized clinical trial. This is uh, by Michael Ewing uh, and colleagues from the University of Missouri. And there's also a visual summary. There were not any available spine articles in this issue. Uh, I selected this one because it is a randomized controlled trial and we do love those. This is a well done randomized controlled trial. No real, you know, major methodologic issues. An interesting clinical conundrum, uh, interscaling block standard of care for uh, pain management postoperatively. But a complication rate that astoundingly here is in the 5 to 16% range. So another option is local infiltration, which has been shown to have similar postoperative analgesic effects, lower cost, lower complication profile. So seemingly a win across the board. This study was done. They randomized 74 patients. Well done from a method standpoint in terms of a primer for randomized controlled trials uh, and reporting. Uh, this this is a good one to emulate. I think they were 
registered at clinicaltrials.gov, which is a, a definite necessary prerequisite in, in these times. They did do non-inferiority testing for the mean pain scores over the first 24 hours. The injection group was found to be non-inferior to the block group. No differences in complications, but they really weren't powered to show that. Uh, the cost is like an order of magnitude higher for the the block group versus the injection group. We're talking $1,700 for the interscaling block versus $157 for the local infiltration. They did find, and this is also really refreshing to see because a lot of times when you do these, where you see these randomized controlled trials, it's just the one it's like overarching. This is the best. It outperforms the competition and you should just go with that. But a little bit of nuance here, which is refreshing. The, the uh, local infiltration analgesia was associated with worse pain at eight hours postoperatively and also intraoperative opioid consumption was higher. So, you know, some contextualization there and a little bit of nuance. You kind of have to balance that against the overwhelmingly reduced costs and at least historically anyway, the difference in the complication profile, although that isn't actually borne out in the randomized control trial because they weren't powered to look at that. So overall, we like RCT studies. This has all the potential to you know, potentially inform clinical practice, improve patient care, help with being a good steward of, of healthcare resources and costs, and, and uh, testable as well, in my opinion. So I agree. It's another Kaiser Sose. That's one of those interesting uh, articles that'll come out. My only concern actually with this topic is when it comes to blocks versus uh, local infiltration is the return to function, right? Like sometimes you get a block and there's a return to function timeframe that's not accounted in for. So not just pain, which is obviously a very good reason to use these blocks, but return to function is what concerns me a little bit. But cost is a big issue and that's something going forward that's important to notice. Yeah, I mean, they definitely, you know, were only focused on a few specific things, which is generally the best you can do with a randomized controlled trial because powering it to look at a lot of these secondary considerations and outcomes is is awfully hard when you're talking about the number of patients that you would need. So my next one now is cost of non-operative procedures for knee osteoarthritis in the year prior to primary total knee arthroplasty by Ninadal, and it's free for 30 days. So be sure to look out for it, and you have 30 days to read it for free. So it's an interesting study looking at the cost of non-operative procedures for knee arthritis prior to total knee arthroplasty. And they looked at the one year prior to knee arthroplasty, assuming that patients had severe osteoarthritis during that time frame, and that's why they underwent this non-operative treatment and looked at the cost of it. Um, they use market scan database. So the benefit of that is it's a huge database, ties in a lot of information from insurance perspectives. The downside about it is that you're missing out on Medicare patients and patients that are older that could be undergoing total knee replacements. So that's an area that they're um, missing out. Now they acknowledge that they, they did notice that, or they didn't note that those patients weren't included in that. But they looked at physical therapy, bracing, intraarticular injections, including professional fee, which is separate, hyaluronic acid, corticosteroids alone, and NSAIDs, opioids, acetaminophen with medication, and knee-specific imaging. And they did find that there was higher costs in the Northeast, so we're more expensive, go figure. And women use more physical therapy and NSAIDs than men, and bracing was the least used. The hardest thing that I struggled with here is there's no really good definition of osteoarthritis, right? They basically assumed it was late stage because they underwent 
They underwent surgery at that time frame. But to be perfectly honest, it's one of those things where they didn't in, like, have radiographic data. They didn't have other information there that would be actually nice to be able to see if they're really end-stage arthritis, as opposed to we've seen some patients before who get surgery and undergo a total knee replacement when they have KL2 and exposed to three or four. So it would be nice to have that. Um, they did acknowledge the fact that the disease stage of OA may be not be deemed severe enough by the physician to qualify for total neoarthroplasty. That was in the introduction. Um, but the, the authors did recognize that they didn't have radiographs or other measures. So this is the downside of a database study as opposed to an institutional study where you would have access to radiographs. Something that might be useful is actually looking at things like the um, osteoarthritis um, initiative, but I do have uh, radiographs that go with that. So that'd be another database that would have more complete information when it comes to that. This is a slightly skewed population. They did note most of the patients, majority were from the South. So that's something to think about. But they did find that intraarticular injections were the most commonly used non-operative management prior to total knee arthroplasty. And they use it, patients average use it two times in the year leading up to surgery. What's interesting is that insurance companies will approve it every three months. So the question is, is this being overutilized, being underutilized? It depends whose perspective you're looking from, right? But on average, patients use it twice before undergoing surgery. But it was the most used, which is expected as per guidelines. So it's nice to see that guidelines are being followed. Uh, one of the guidelines, for example, is the AOS CPG on non-operative management of knee osteoarthritis. What's interesting and uh, that I found is that imaging was the most. And I think we have a bad habit of pulling a trigger every time a patient shows up in the clinic, they get an image, right? And it might be three months ago, it might be six months ago. They're coming in for another visit. They're getting another image. Um, and the last things has changed, right? For example, if a patient comes in with greater knee arthritis or things like that, you probably don't need as much imaging. So that's the cost of the system that could potentially be reduced in a quick fashion. And that study has been shown in uh, other studies as well, too, where they um, looked at the amount of imaging and see how much um, clinical change or clinical uh, differences made from getting uh, repeat imaging. Uh, one of the hardest things for me from a method standpoint or result standpoint, you can probably tell me this, is that there's huge standard deviations in the costs right? You have a cost value and the standard deviation is twice the amount of what the cost actually is. And there's overlap between populations. So even though the differences in cost for, you know, geographic regions, genders, et cetera, et cetera, there are huge overlaps within them. So uh, while statistically significant, whether or not it's truly meaningfully significant is something else. And of course, there's other over-the-counter bracings or PRP and stem cells, which are really expensive that weren't included in this analysis. And that'd be really good to know. What I'd like to see this is really is comparing this to the cost of total knee arthroplasty, right? They're reporting the non-operative treatment of knee arthritis, which is great. And the endpoint is total knee arthroplasty. So the question that always arises, and there are other Markov models and treatment models that look at this, it says, you know, when is it, you know, economically benefit to undergo these non-operative treatment managements versus undergo a total knee replacement? Understanding total knee replacements are expensive, can have complications, things like that, but Markov models have a lot of assumptions that be made with it, but that is something to think about. And there's no evidence from the study that conservative management reduces the need for surgery. It might just delay surgery. So if you're going to delay surgery, you're just going to add more cost to the system. And they might take patients out, you know, for you know work or things like that. And they did acknowledge that they didn't include economic analysis of time off work or the ability to work 
Um, you know, is, is it truly cost savings? Is it truly cost detrimental? You know, when a patient comes in for an injection, do you have to take off half the day or a full day to go visit the doctor, get the injection and then go home? Or do you need a, a caregiver to take you as well too? And they're taking time off and um, that takes uh, time off the schedule. So it's interesting. Um, I think this the work economic analysis part of it is actually very relevant in this database specifically because it doesn't include Medicare patients. So it's likely to be younger patients and these younger patients are more likely to be contributing to the workforce. So not on hold, because I think it's actually good to put these costs out there, but we do have to be careful about how we cautiously um, interpret the data. You've heard before that I've been referred to as the Tony Romo of JBJS. And people are always asking like, why are you the Tony Romo of JBJS? There's actually two reasons, but One is, and it's football season, so it's appropriate to talk about this again. We're back in the midst of NFL football. So Tony Romo, as you know, former quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys, and he's now uh, an announcer. And they'll have, you know, a play, guy makes the reception, and it's a first down. And then he'll be like, they'll they'll do the, the, the replay. And he's like, uh, I don't, I don't know. Mm, could be, oh, it's close. I don't, you know, or it's a touchdown. They say, oh, it's a touchdown. And he's like, well, uh, I mean, if we look here, oh, mm. so that I'm, I'm the Tony Romo of JBJS because people will be like, is this a good study? And I'll be like, I don't know. I mean, all the points that you brought up, they're all kind of doing my Tony Romo voice. Kind, yeah, you know, it sort of, they, they all make sense, but. It is entirely or or majority uh, privately insured patients who may actually have a tendency to use more than Medicare patients or uh, patients with uh, with other types of uh, or <clears throat> insurance or uh, underinsured patients. They also may have more access, uh, different outlook. All of these things are 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 drivers. When it comes down to it, though, you know what I, what I'm sort of left with is. Well, everything costs something. <laughs> care, all care costs something. There's no free lunch. And, you know, you kind of touched on this point, but when I was reading this, I'm saying to myself, well, obviously their like stances, you know, we're spending all this money for nothing because they're all going to need total joints in the end, right? Um, because non-operative care is just not going to get them where they need to be, which isn't entirely true. It, you know, first off, you know, some of these patients may not be I- ideal candidates for total knee replacement for, for whatever reason. They need to be optimized from a medical standpoint, from a BMI standpoint. They're not ready. They themselves are not ready for, for the knee replacement. So, you know, the counterfactual here is somewhat problematic for me because what what is the great? So we characterize what the cost is, you know, and and if you're saying the average total cost of non-operative procedures per patient was $1,355. Okay. And maybe that sounds like it's a lot of money for the average total cost of non-operative care, but what's the cost of a total knee implant, right? What the implant alone is several times more, maybe not in order of magnitude more, but the global cost of care certainly is. Absolutely. Right. And on the one hand, it's it's not a zero-sum game. It's not, well, they can get non-operative care or they can get operative care. And if you get the operative care, you just it's not like you just pay for that cost one time because 
not everyone does awesome after their total joint replacement, or even if they do well, it doesn't mean that they don't need further care and rehabilitation or have other issues that go on to require further treatment. And you don't have the counterfactual. You can't say, well, if they had the total knee arthroplasty when they were 60, then they wouldn't need this when they're 70. No, actually, they could need more when they're 70. I, you know, there are revisions, there are failures, there are all sorts of secondary effects, downstream effects years and even decades after after a joint replacement. So to characterize this other than for informational purposes, which is fine, and this may get cited a lot in textbooks and in the introduction of other articles where they quote the price, fine, you know, that's the quote price, but the number on the jersey is the quote price, as Pusha T says. We just got tons of Easter eggs in this ish, in, in this episode. I mean, I hope you're enjoying it as much as I am, but I, I don't know what, what you really do with this. Go, you can't contrast it to the total joint arthroplasty, which sort of is the natural way to look at these things. And the assumptions on the cost of care, I think are really, there's a moral hazard around that because one, you're not going to drive everyone to have total joints. Not everyone is even eligible for total joints. You're not going to deny people care and say, well, you can have the total joint replacement or you can get nothing. So none of those are are reasonable scenarios. So we put a price tag on what the cost of non-operative care is for patients in the year preceding total knee arthroplasty in this cohort of patients. But it doesn't mean that it applies to every single person who maybe doesn't have knee arthroplasty in the year leading up to it, or that if you just went and did the knee arthroplasty a year sooner, you'd save $1,355, I guess, you know, uh, or you'd have 1,355 off of the price tag of the knee replacement. And then what happens? Right. Right. That's the hard part. There's no further on a delineation of how these patients do. So did you put it on hold Dracula or did you not? Uh, No, there's no reason to put it on hold, uh, but it's just kind of, you know, the natural way you read the story is it's like, these are, you know, it's sort of framed to my mind. And maybe that's just my, you know, cynical, skeptical self. Uh, guilty as charged. But to my mind, it's sort of the narrative, the way it's framed is, well, if we would just do total knee arthroplasty for these patients, we'd be saving, quote unquote, saving $1,300 per case. And the thought part is there's so much variability it already showed, right? For example, when you talk about total knee implants, an implant can cost one amount someplace and another amount another place, right? So it's hard. Cost ones are tough because there are so many layers to it and it has to be transparent. A lot of times it's not. So something to think about there too. Absolutely. All right. Do you want to kick us off on the next one? No difference in conversion rate to total hip arthroplasty after intermedially nail or sliding hip screw for extra capsular hip fracture. An observational cohort study of 19,604 individuals by Parherin et al. with a commentary. So don't have to take our opinion. There's someone else also opinionating on this too. This is the Your Cases on Hold featurette where we're really looking to put some some pauses, repressing pause on some some cases, not necessarily this case. Again, I'm back to Tony Romo. Mm, I don't know. Is your case on hold? Uh, I'm not sure. Maybe, but maybe. I don't. Yeah. So this study uh, involved 19,600 plus patients from the Swedish Fracture Registry from 2012 to 2018, looking at 
intertrochanteric fractures, pertrochanteric fractures, or subtrochanteric fractures, comparing the intramedullary nail to the sliding hip screw construct. Some things that stood out to me, first off, it's an incredibly large number of patients in a relatively small time frame, just 2012 to 2018. The median age of the sample was 85. The range was 60 to 107. So that's wild. Uh, you know, it's definitely a clinically relevant question. Uh, in I think there's kind of like a, a generation gap that exists between the sliding hip screw and the intramedullary nail. Younger trained surgeons are uh, preferential to the cephalomedullary kind of devices. And it's like the older surgeons that like the, the sliding hip screws. I think realistically, both can probably be done pretty quickly if, you know, it's probably preference sensitive and what you're trained on and what you're facile at doing. The intramedullary narrow construct is conventionally advertised as being more minimally invasive than, you know, the sliding hip screw requires just can be relatively small, but still an incision on the lateral aspect. And when it comes down to it, they, you know, did some comparisons looking at the conversion rate to hip arthroplasty uh, as a marker of failure for these for these constructs. The analysis was a conventional uh multivariable regression approach, I do think that there is the potential for selection and indication bias to to inform this. I think that, you know, the popular wisdom is that the individuals who are more active, potentially like, you know, higher longevity, they're going to get the intramedullary nail. Patients who are more premoribund or sedentary might get the sliding hip screws. And that might also play into some of these findings where there's a slight difference in terms of increased failure for the cephalomedullary constructs, more in the secondary analyses. And I had some questions about those. Uh, but you know, ultimately, the conclusion is that when looking at conversion arthroplasty, they both perform equally well. If you're talking about specific to intertrochanteric fractures, the AOOTA31A2 class, which you think is a clown, but then you have to ask yourself, why does somebody step out of a 31A2 class fracture? This was associated with more reoperations than the sliding hip screw. The differences between the implants were small and they did appropriately account for the competing risk of dying. So that, that is a good methodologic best practice. When you look at the tables, though, they don't have, a, as you get with registry studies, they don't have a whole lot of clinically granular information. And when you look at table three that shows the multivariable analysis overall, when they're accounting for age and the fracture type in a model with the intermedullary nail as the primary treatment, that estimate for the hazard is not statistically significant. So some of what they're saying in the conclusions with these subset analyses are a little bit iffy because I, I would go off of the, the standardized assessment for the multivariable analysis that's already including your fracture types in the multivariable model. So it's accounted for, it's adjusted for. Now, what, what they could have done in a perfect world would be some type of causal inference test where you're actually looking at you know, a narrower scope of patients where there might have been equipoise and better similarity between the intermedullary nail and the sliding hip screw, they were not really able to do this because they they have very limited clinical data or things that could inform decision-making, at least based on the information that they provide to us. So I don't really think that they could have done that. It's just in a perfect world scenario, they might have been able to do that. That would make this somewhat better. 
Again, uh, a clinically interesting question, one with immediate applications to, to practice, and this has test items written all over it, multiple test items, not just one. So it is one of those things where, how do I put it? It's not a nail in the coffin when it comes to debate between. <laughs> you know, I love the vampire. <laughs> you got it. You got a little Dracula in there. You got to pull it together, right? Um, not the nail in the coffin or the final decision between sliding hip screw and intramedullary nail. And you're exact. I completely agree with you with the whole fixation meant depend, depending on surgeon comfort and training levels. And it goes to show, right? A2 is that inner troke fracture where it could probably go both ways, but an A2 is not an A2, right? You can have completely unstable. You can have pretty much just right there and you're doing sawbones and you're putting something in there to hold it in place. And this data does not, this database does not cover that. Interestingly, you're right. The spread of 60 to 107 is huge. Um, but I have put in nails and sliding hip screws in younger patients. So it'd be kind of interesting to even include patients younger than this, but they start their database at 60 and older. Now, again, 107, would that same result be here in the U.S.? I don't know. I haven't done a, treated a lot of 107-year-old patients, so that's pretty impressive. <laughs> but but I agree with you on that one. So it'd be neat. Uh, they have one-year follow-up minimum. They do have five-year analysis, and the follow-up range is one to eight. So it's nice to get a little bit longer follow-up, especially since it's a national healthcare system. But this is a national healthcare system. It's really nice because you can follow patients for a longer period of time. There's one thing I would like to add. You, well, all your analysis stuff is unparalleled to what I could ever say about this. What I'm curious about, actually, from a arthroplasty standpoint, is they get reoperation or they get a conversion to a total hip arthroplasty. How do they do after that? And they don't include that data, right? Because you get a patient who gets an IM nail taken out, and that's a long nail. Are they bypassing it? Are the risk of fracture greater? Are they putting on touchdown weight breaking or sliding hip screw because you don't violate the canal? Do they do better after the conversion to a total hip replacement? So the end point of a conversion is good, but I'd like to see how they do after hip arthroplasty because I think that makes a little bit of difference. You know, perforating the lateral uh, cortex versus not perforating lateral cortex does that make a difference as to deciding which to use as your initial treatment to see how they do further down the road based on fracture pattern, based on how they present and things like that. But that is the hardest part with a database. You can't necessarily uh, account for all comorbidities or co-founders or confounders. Relevant to one of your other points, again, with like, this is, you know, a Swedish population, which I just, in my head is, you know, they're all like super fit. That's why they live to be 107. You know, they don't have BMI. The first thing I was looking for was BMI. And I was like, what are the BMI of these patients? But nope, that's not, <laughs> we're not privy to that from the registry. And I think that can also make a really big difference in terms of, you know, mimicking this in a, an American uh, cohort. Great. So good thoughts. Nice to see here too, at some point in time when the AGR potentially gets bigger, but we don't have the ability to do so quite yet. All right. Moving on to honorable mentions. Got some good animal mentions here, clinical outcomes and complications of simultaneous or sequential bilateral total ankle arthroplasty, a single center comparative cohort study by Fletcher et al. There is a commentary on this one as well too. So check that out. Concomitant Achilles tendon lengthening procedure with transmetatarsal amputation for the prevention of late forefoot ulceration by Bullock al. al. And there's also a um, Instagram here that's uh, available as well too. Biomechanical and finite animal analysis of femoral pin site fractures following navigation-assisted total knee arthroplasty, Sun et al., perm-free. And then finally, osteointegration with remodeling of mineralized bone graft are negatively impacted by prior treatment with bisphosphonates. Cohen et al., and it's 30 days free, so please read it. Check these out. 
And thank you for joining us for another session of Your Case is on Hold. <laughs> yeah, we're ready to go. We got to uh, make sure that, uh, you know, you uh, get some good reading this uh, this October, not just JBJS, but, you know, some horror fiction or something like that. Be in the spirit of the season. And we will see you back for more horror-themed Easter eggs in our YCOH number 20. Welcome to the big two zero. That's a milestone. Thanks for sticking with us, guys, and tune in again next time. 